Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at the Decalogue or Ten Commandments. I guess we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then the reflection of the command to bear God's name in Deuteronomy 13 and 14. And we're joined by our expert guide today, Dr. Car- Carmen Joy Imes. Oh, Dr. Carmen Joy Imes is Associate Professor of Old Testament at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And among other books and articles, she's the author of two that are particularly relevant to the text that we're discussing in this episode, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, and Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, a reexamination of the name command of the Decalogue. She also hosts on YouTube, Torah Tuesday. Uh, and these videos are super helpful for people who want to dig a little bit more deeply into the Torah. Carmen, could you tell us a little bit more about what people would encounter there? Sure. So I release a weekly video, obviously on Tuesdays, but you can watch them any day of the week. They don't expire. <laughs> um, they're usually between five and seven minutes long. And they started, I started doing this during the pandemic when all the speaking engagements were canceled. And I was hard at work on a commentary on the book of Exodus and like finding so much cool stuff as I was studying. And I didn't want people to have to wait five years to hear it. And so I just thought if I just shared a little tidbit every week of what I'm learning, that might be useful to people. So there's a lot of pastors and lay people who are watching them to to kind of help them work through the text of Exodus. So often like Hebrew wordplay that you can't see in English or literary design kind of issues are what I talk about. That's great. And could you also give listeners a little bit of guidance? So you've got these two books uh, Mm -hmm. with similar titles. If they wanted to choose one instead of buying both, I mean, obviously you could just buy both books, but (laughs) what's the difference between the two books? Yes, good question. So the one with the really long title is my dissertation, Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, a reexamination of the name command of the Decalogue. <laughs> you can tell by the title that it's going to be a bit heady. And uh, I'll just say that my grandma bought a copy when it came out and she was very frustrated because she said to me, Carmen, I knew I wouldn't be able to understand the Hebrew, but I didn't know I wouldn't be able to understand the English. <laughs> so it's, it's my dissertation in published form. So if you are an academic, you might appreciate it because it gives the, the background uh, behind my, the way that I read the name command. It's a deep dive on one verse of the Bible, kind of looking at it from every conceivable angle. Bearing God's name, why Sinai still matters, is my attempt to take what I learned in the dissertation and communicate it to everyone else who doesn't read Hebrew and isn't going to be interested in a dissertation. So I had my 17-year-old read through the entire manuscript before it went through to the publisher, which is InterVarsity Press, and we took out every word she didn't know. So I really think all of you listening to this would be fine to read that book. And it's, it's not the same thing as my dissertation. It's tracing the theme of bearing God's name through the entire Bible. But we do spend a lot of time at Sinai kind of laying a foundation. So they're, they're different books, different audiences. But um, yeah, I hope there's something for everybody. Now, did your uh, grandma pay the full sticker price? For, uh, <laughs> she, <laughs> she did. She did. Yep, she, she ordered loves you it. so much. That's she, beautiful. She ordered it on Amazon, poor thing. Oh, man. <laughs> so, I hope it wasn't like a $150 monograph. You know? <laughs> I think I think it's like 65 so not quite yeah, as okay. bad. <laughs> okay, right. It's yeah. not Brill. It's Eisenbrunn's. <laughs> yeah, right. right. A little more affordable. Uh, yep. So, you know, you mentioned that uh, Sinai is foundational for the work that you do in bearing God's name and a foundational question that we have to ask before we dig any more deeply into the Decalogue or Ten Commandments is what we call this collection of words or commandments or whatever. How do you think through that? What's the term that you prefer? And 
what are the issues that we have to think about when we're picking a term for this collection? Yeah, good question. So the the really academic term to use is decalogue, which is just a, a Greek compound word that means 10 words. And the reason scholars like to use that term is because the Bible never calls these 10 commandments. Now, some people are going to flip through their Bibles right now and they're going to find it. They're going to be like, oh, no, but my Bible says 10 commandments. What I mean is in Hebrew, it's always 10 words. Our English translations usually render it 10 commandments. It's just there's a long tradition of doing it that way. So I'm not entirely sure of all the reasons. Um, Since people call them the Ten Commandments, traditionally, I usually call them the Ten Commandments when I'm teaching. I want people to be able to understand me. (laughs) So so I don't usually stick with Decalogue unless it's a more academic context. Ten words would also work, but it doesn't have the same resonance in English because we're not used to saying it. So... (laughs) Right. Sure. Yeah, that's true. And it, it, it is true that you have to pick your battles when you're a biblical you scholar. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so. we could be picky about basically everything and then people would feel afraid to talk with us about anything because they'd get it wrong. And I, that's not what right, I want right. to cultivate. Yeah. Sure. And most of us really do enjoy talking to people about the Bible. So if we cannot create extra obstacles <laughs> to that, that's, that's totally. a good strategy. Totally. Well, Carmen, what first drew you to studying the 10... Yeah, so my my entry point into the Ten Commandments was a little bit uh, non-traditional, maybe, or a little bit unusual. So when I was applying for doctoral programs, I wanted to study with Dan Block at Wheaton College, and he was nearing retirement, and I thought, I just felt like, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom who just kind of picked my way through seminary. I just don't feel like I'm in a position to know what needs to be done in this field. Like that's for a dissertation, you have to choose a topic nobody's done before. And how would I know if people have done this? So I just thought I would ask his advice because at Wheaton, the supervisor is a, plays a huge role in who is accepted into the program. And you come into Wheaton with a topic to work on. So I just wrote to Dan Block and I said, you're nearing retirement. What, what are some topics that you still think need to be done that you'd like to supervise? And I thought, well, he might say, you know, that's, that's the wrong question. You have to figure it out for yourself and you're not allowed to ask me that. I, but he didn't, he actually was gracious and sent me a whole list of topics that he thought needed to be done. And when I read through the list, one of the items was, uh, was my topic, a re-examination of this name command, not taking the Lord's name in vain. He was convinced that the command had been grossly misunderstood and that it needed a fresh look. And mm-hmm. he sent me a sermon that he had preached on it to read. And I thought, wow, this is a topic that is not only interesting to me now, but I think could continue to be interesting to me for years to come. I'm not going to get tired of it. And it preaches, it's it's relevant to the church. And so it kind of checked all my boxes in terms of a topic. So I didn't set out thinking, I want to become a legal scholar or, or you know, <laughs> hang out in Old Testament law. <clears throat> I just kind of got there on accident uh, by Dan Block's recommendation. So, yeah. That's great. Now, how do you see the Ten Commandments fitting into the book of Deuteronomy as a whole? Yeah, so Deuteronomy is a book that I would I would characterize as a prophetic sermon. Moses is giving his last words to the people before he dies, and he's preparing them for entry into the land. And so uh, for him to start that message with a recital of, here's how God has brought you to this point, and then here are the here are the ten words again. You need to know them. I think kind of sets the trajectory for the rest of the book. Some scholars would even say it sets the the structure of the rest of the book. We'll mm-hmm. maybe talk about that later. Um, but it's really the the uh, first step or or the ground level of what it looks like to be covenantally faithful to Yahweh. It's um, we could call the Ten Commands the stipulations of the covenant that God made with his people at Sinai. So to say these again right at the outset indicates that uh, that this is the most important, you know, kind of the baseline for everything that follows. 
Now, what's the hardest thing for you to understand about these 10 commandments? I think one of the challenges with the 10 commandments is that they are so familiar to us that we think we understand them. And so that over familiarity actually Mm -hmm. makes us lazy. Mm. Um, And there are some well entrenched mischaracterizations of the 10 commandments kind of on two extremes, depending on who you talk to. Um, There are some who would say, this is like, the core of, of what people call natural law. Like this is, these commands are timeless and universal. They apply to everyone everywhere in the world at all periods of time. And so they're, they should be the foundation for modern law. So that's kind of one mischaracterization of it. Mm -hmm. And then on the other extreme, there are those Christians who would say, we don't even need to pay attention to these anymore because this is Old Testament law. We have grace through Jesus, so we can just leave them aside and move on. And I think both of those are are reading against the grain of the text and not taking it seriously on its own terms. Now, this isn't the first time that we've encountered the Decalogue as we're reading through the Torah. It also appears in Exodus chapter 20. So why is it repeated here when we had it earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're doing a Bible read through and you get to Deuteronomy, you're like, I have already, re- I feel like I've already read this before. <laughs> Why is it in here twice? Um, it's actually really significant that the commands are repeated here because we have a completely different audience for them. Um, if you think about Exodus, is the people at Sinai just after they've come out of Egypt, out of slavery. And God is first meeting them. And then we have that interlude in the book of of Numbers where they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and a whole generation dies. And because of their unwillingness to trust Yahweh to go into the land, to bring them into the land. So when we get to Deuteronomy, we've got a completely new group of people. And so it's essential that they hear the word of God. They hear the expectations Um themselves. One of the things I love about Deuteronomy is it makes clear that there's no such thing as a second generation covenant member. Like Mm -hmm. every Israelite of any generation is a first generation covenant member. You're, you're never like riding on the coattails of your parents or your grandparents. Um, They have to make their own commitment and, and live faithfully as a result. Mm -hmm. Is that now? Is this why we have this? So, if we have these two versions, right, one in uh, Exodus and one in mm-hmm. Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. in Deuteronomy, there's a kind of added preamble even before what's similar to what we find in Exodus, right? Mm-hmm. So, we read in Exodus 20, let's go there. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay, we have that same thing in Deuteronomy 5. Yeah. But in Deuteronomy 5, we have. Again, the same preamble, but then right before that, we have this additional phrase where mm-hmm. Moses says, the Lord, our God, made a covenant with us at Horeb. And then this is kind of strange in verse mm-hmm. three, not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but mm-hmm. with us who are all of us here alive today. Mm-hmm. Why does he say not with our ancestors? Yeah, this is uh, this is striking. If you're reading along through the early chapters of Deuteronomy, you might even wonder if Moses has started to lose it a bit. And if he's going <laughs> senile in his old age, we know that he, he brings the people out of Egypt at age 80. We learn that in Exodus chapter six. So he's already 80 years old when he brings the people out and, and he dies at 120. So by the time he's in Deuteronomy, he's a really old dude. And you kind of wonder, like, is he like merging generations in his mind? Like he's now forgotten mm. this happens, right? So I went to see my grandmother a couple of years ago with my dad. Um, So it wasn't her son, but her son-in-law. It was my mom's mom. And as we sat there talking to her, it became clear that she thought we were married. She she was like blending generations. And this this is a very frequent feature of dementia. Oh, and so so you kind of wonder like, is Moses doing this? Has he forgotten that a bunch of people died and this is the new generation? And I think no, he hasn't forgotten. Uh, he is demonstrating this important uh, principle of corporate continuity. That is the people of God. There's a there's a continuity in the people of God across generations. And collectively, uh, they are 
covenant members. And so, so for him to say, not with their, our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant is acknowledging our ancestors chose unfaithfulness. They, they opted out of covenant blessings by failing to trust God. And so we now have a new opportunity to opt mm. into covenant blessings. Mm. And, and it's all of us who are alive here today who are being given this opportunity. And I think that's a wonderful model for how to think about faith. Mm. Uh, and I think the New Testament authors actually take their cue from Moses here. Um, in, in, as they talk about us being grafted in and us being part of the covenant is this, this idea of corporate continuity that it's not like we're all just looking back and wishing we could have been at Sinai. He says, no, 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 you were there. This is your story. Um, e- maybe even more so than it was your parents' story because you're choosing faithfulness. Mm, yeah. When I uh, taught at Oxford, uh, we used to interview potential undergraduates. So, you know, these are the equivalent of high school students and they would come in and uh, it was Oxford and Cambridge are notorious for asking these students the most difficult questions mm. that just seem unfair to ask to a 17 or an 18 year old. <laughs> yeah. So when these students would come in, um, when I was doing these interviews, what I, what I would do is just lay the Exodus 20 and the Deuteronomy 5 versions mm-hmm. of the Ten Commandments in front of them and say, okay, <clears throat> tell me what's going on here, right? Because mm-hmm. we have two versions, mm-hmm. but yep. they're not exactly the same. So if I was interviewing Carmen Imes as an 18-year-old, or maybe <laughs> let's say the current version of Carmen Imes. <laughs> current version, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do we notice when we compare these two versions together? Yeah, it is actually a fun assignment. So if anybody listening wants a homework assignment, you know, just put these versions side by side. Just You could just pull them up on Bible Gateway and then print them out and highlight all the differences. What becomes evident from the beginning is that Moses is speaking live to the people. Like Deuteronomy is styled as a sermon. And so he several times will say things like, as, as the Lord commanded you, or as I said before, like, so there's this sort of, you get this sense of we're, we're hearing, we're listening in on a verbal proclamation where he's putting in phrases to signal to the people, like, this is the same thing. I haven't changed it. Right. So we have the same commandments, but some of the motivations for those commands are different. And there's a few extra little words tucked in here or there that expand their application or specify their application. So, so it's really fun to, to track those differences. And what would be some, I mean, you mentioned different motivations. So the, the big one, right, is the Sabbath commandment. Yes. Uh, The distinction between the way that that, obedience is motivated in Exodus 20 and the way it's motivated in Deuteronomy 5. Yes. Can you walk us through that? Sure. This is actually such a fun one because it illustrates this idea of corporate continuity that we were just talking Mm. about. So in Exodus, the Lord tells them to keep the Sabbath and then be, and then he gives the reason, uh, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God, you shall not do any work. Um, and then after he lists who who shouldn't do any work, he says, for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. So in Exodus, the reason we keep the Sabbath is to pattern our work week after God's work week in Genesis one. Like, OK, cool. Then we get to Deuteronomy and Moses says to this second generation, the people who were not slaves in Egypt, but were born in the wilderness. He says Mm. to them, keep the Sabbath. And then he says, remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord, your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord, your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So he just literally swapped out the motivation for keeping the Sabbath command, you know, previously grounded in creation and now grounded in liberation from slavery Mm. in Egypt. And I think, again, this is Moses kind of wink, wink. You were slaves in Egypt. Uh, He wants every Israelite to see themselves as having been rescued from that Mm. life of slavery. He could have said this in Exodus. He could have said this to the people at the mountain. 
but he doesn't. And I, I, I'm not sure why there, although I think it's clear to me that Genesis 1 is styled the way it is to be a pattern for our work and worship. But, but in Deuteronomy, it's grounded in their freedom from slavery. And so you should, here's the takeaway, I think. The reason you shouldn't work seven days a week, 24-7, is because I, I moved heaven and earth to set you free from that. You used mm. to work 24-7 for somebody else. Now I'm your master, and I'm not that kind of master. I'm not like right. Pharaoh. I'm actually instituting a day off, and I want you to take it. So sometimes Christians are like, oh, that's the command we don't have to keep, right? Like, because Sabbath <laughs> equals legalism. And I'm right, like, right. why would that be the command we would want to get rid of? Like, right, right. Why would we not celebrate the idea that God wants us to take a rest one day a week? And I think maybe even more importantly, that he wants us to order our households so that everyone in the household gets a day of rest. Mm -hmm. So so that the head of household does not treat the members of his household as though they're slaves. Right. God is instituting a different kind of society. And that's not just, it's not replacing that earlier motivation with a no, new one. It, it's no. adding. It's adding. Combining, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're not both mentioned in Deuteronomy, but I, I don't, I don't see any reason why this one would be replacing that one. He knows that they've heard this and now he's adding mm -hmm. in additional motivation. I think mm. in part to reinforce the idea that, that the Exodus is their story. Mm-hmm. So not only do we have these two slightly different versions of the Ten Commandments in Exodus and Deuteronomy, mm -hmm. but in Jewish uh, and in Catholic and Protestant traditions, we also have some differences in how these commandments have been ordered. Yes. Um, what What do you think is going on there? Could you walk us through maybe just a little bit of that or an example where sure. there's some differences in ordering and why it matters, how we sure. order them or count them up? Okay, yeah, this was the first big surprise I encountered as I got into my dissertation work, finding out that people could not agree how to count to 10. And you would think that would be like the basic, easy question is like, what are the 10 commandments? But all, dating all the way back to the, the, uh, the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible that we have, there's like an accent system. There's two competing accent systems that signal what the 10 are and they're different. And so dating, like, you know, we're, we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years back, people already couldn't agree on how to count them. And then you have different traditions today of how to count them. So, so Jews and Catholics and Orthodox uh, all count them differently. So, so one of the issues behind it is that we call them the 10 commandments but as we already mentioned, the Hebrew Bible calls them the 10 words. So we don't actually, or that, and, and by words, it's the Hebrew word davar, devarim, mm -hmm. which means matters or items or whatever. It's not just like an individual word. It's like right. a statement, an utterance. Yeah. And so, so we, sometimes I think this, the, the search for 10 has ignored verse 2, Exodus 20, verse 2, or Deuteronomy 5, verse 6, as uh, as part of this scenario, because we're looking for commandments, when it mm -hmm. could be a little broader than that. So when, Yah when Yahweh says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, uh, Jewish interpreters often count that as, as number one. That's number one. I am Yahweh. I brought you out of slavery. Which is a really, it's a really cool way to start a list of commands. Like, yeah. here's the reason why I have the authority to tell you to live in the way that I do, because I literally set you free from slavery. Now I'm your new master. And it frames the entire set of 10 as a, as a description of life in freedom. Mm -hmm. So this is not a new form of bondage. Whatever follows is not bondage, but but consistent with freedom. So I think that's important for us to see whether you count that as its own word or whether you combine it with the first word. Um, you know, the next command uh, is is debatable, but that is that is one factor. One of the most fascinating things that I've noticed is that 
Um, this isn't true totally across the board, but you can often tell how people are going to respond to images of God, like pictures, pictorial representations mm -hmm. of the divine, based on how they count the commandments. So mm -hmm. the question is whether you whether you take the command against idols or carved images as its own word or whether it's part of the no other gods word. And if you yep. combine it with the no other gods, then it leaves open the possibility of seeing. Uh, so, so Catholics and Lutherans combine those two, no other gods and no idols. They combine them. And so then if you walk into a Catholic home or place of worship, you'll see lots of icons, you know, with, images of the Trinity, and they don't see that as a violation of the Ten Commandments because the command is not to have images of other gods. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's combined with this idea of no other gods. But if you separate these and say no other gods and no images, then the no images by itself might lead you to conclude we shouldn't have any images of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. So right. that's just an interesting practical difference. Yeah, that's true. In fact, when I was uh, Googling around to find a good uh, table that showed these different commands, and we're going to put a table up on our websites for people who want to try and compare them with one another. Sure. But I found people who were trying to claim, well, Catholics have deleted the commandment about <laughs> images. Oh, right? no. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's not. That's not the case. It's just right. incorporated into and you can see how that makes sense. Yeah. Now, uh, Tell us about how you order these, because for you, yeah. you don't take the traditional pr Protestant ordering. And it has I don't. to do with all the research that you've done on the name command. So uh, tell us about your thought process there. Yeah. So for me, as I dug into the commands and tried to figure out how do I count these, I was really struck by by the literary design of the first. So if we're in, um, if we're in Deuteronomy 5, um, like 6 through six through 10 all seemed like it went together literarily. Um, mm. So, so six through 10 is the, is the command not to have other gods and the command not to have carved images. And I became persuaded that these were one in the same. And so there's a, there's a his, historical logic to my conclusion. And there's also a literary reason behind it. So the historical logic is if you're living in the ancient near East and you're worshiping a God you have to have an idol of that God to be able to worship them. So it, it's not as though there are other ancient Near Easterners who are worshiping gods without having an idol. So mm -hmm. to say you shall not worship other gods implies you shall not have idols of them. Mm -hmm. And conversely, nobody is going to have an image or idol of a, of a deity and not worship it like the the two that's why you have them and that's how right. you do it so so to me from an ancient near eastern perspective these two belong together and and they're just different ways of saying the same thing and i see <clears throat> i see a bit of a chiasm i i try not to be like chiasm crazy but i do love a good <laughs> chiasm um and there does seem to be a kind of framing going on so in verse six you have i am yahweh your god and verses 9 and 10, you have, I am Yahweh, your God. And then in between, you have the prohibitions not to have other gods and not to make carved images. And it, so it seems like the I am Yahweh's frame that and draw them together, like they connect them to each other. Um, and actually, even more than that, the carved image seems like it goes right in the center of the chiasm with a prohibition on either side not to have other gods and not to bow down to them. And the reason why I think that's significant is because in verse 9, it says, you are not to bow down to or serve them, which is plural. And the thing that comes right before it is, you are not to make a carved image, singular. So it seems mm. like it needs a plural antecedent. And so you have yep. to go back all the way to verse 7 to find you are not to have any other gods, mm. which for some people is a different command. But I think it's referring back to that. Like I, that tells me these belong together. They're the same. Okay. Same thing. Yeah. So it, so if you if you find that persuasive, I have a little bit longer discussion of it in my dissertation. But if you find that persuasive, then then all the way up through verse 10 is command number one. Right. And then somehow you have to find another command somewhere <laughs> to come up <laughs> to with get 10, 10 right? yeah. either, either by making verse, uh, verse six, its own 
you know, I am Yahweh, your God who brought you out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. That could be, which is the Jewish. Yeah. That's the Jewish approach. Cause they also, they also do the same thing as you and put these, the, the next two together. Yes. Or so you can do that. You can make verse six its own, or you can include that as the justification for why you shouldn't have other gods, because I'm the one who who rescued you. I, I think logically they work together. So for me, six through 10 is one command. And then the way I find my other command is down in verse uh, 21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, I take as its own command. And then you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I take that as a separate command. So you shall not covet your neighbor's wife is 10. And then the not coveting anything else belonging to your neighbor is number 10. Wait, did I say that wrong? Wait. Nine and then 10. <laughs> and the, Deut- the version in Deuteronomy actually helps you out a little bit for that, right? It does, yeah, because the Exodus version switches house and wife. So uh-huh. so in in Exodus, you're not supposed to covet your neighbor's house or household. And then wife comes under that broader category. But it, it uh-huh. seems like, so my mentor, Dan Block, would argue that the Deuteronomy version of the Decalogue is is showing a humanitarian bent, almost like a correction to how the Decalogue had been misunderstood by the generation in between. Like Moses yeah, okay. makes this slight improvement, giving the wife her own line item, because he wants to make clear that the wife is not just a property of the husband. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so he, yeah. he says there's a humanitarian impulse there that, that flips them, and it does make it easier to count the 10 in Deuteronomy. And he sees that humanitarian impulse then, I guess that could fit with what you talked about the Sabbath, right? In terms of how yeah. that was interpreted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Deuteronomy helps you out even more because it uses a different verb. Yes. Uh, for yes. when it talks about desiring your neighbor's house or yes. field or, or male yep. or female slave. Whereas in Exodus, it's the same covet verb uh, in both of those yep. statements. So, and so I don't know, I'm speculating, but maybe like, people would like sit around the campfire at night and, and recite the 10 words. And there was some con- confusion about, wait, no, 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 I don't think that's one. I think that's this one. And so Moses like, here, let me clear this up for you. And he uses right. two different verbs to make it clear that these are two different commands. <laughs> sure. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Right. Yeah, I mean, there could be that kind of clarification of the tradition over time. It's certainly possible. Yep. Now, sure. one place where it could matter how we count up the commandments differently is the way we think about the structure of okay. the Ten Commandments as a whole. Yeah. Uh, and there are, again, different proposals to this. I mean, one proposal that I've heard is that the first commandments, no matter how you count them, maybe the, the first yeah. four, um, maybe the first five, you know, so the traditional Protestant numbering, if you did the first five, that would take you down to the honor father and mother commandment. Mm-hmm that those have a vertical orientation, right? Mm-hmm. The, so the way that people relate to God and the honor your father and mother is kind of a, a, a hinge point because it is a child relating vertically to an authority over them, their parents, but the parents are fellow humans, which then leads us into the last five, which mm-hmm. are horizontal, how people treat one another. Yeah. Uh, so that's one way that I've heard the Ten Commandments structured. What do you think about that kind of argument? Or is there a way that you prefer to talk about how they are structured? Yes, this proposal has also a long history. There's a long history of debate, whether it's five and five or four and six or even three and seven. Um, And part of it, part of the discussion actually stems from a misunderstanding about the two tablets. So Mm -hmm. I think that people were driven to divide them in two because they were trying to figure out which commands were on which tablet because we got two of them. So maybe they're like organized. And I don't think that's why we have two tablets. We can talk about that later. Um, Let's talk about that now. Okay, we can. Let's talk about that now. And I actually think that, um, I mean, just to reinforce that idea, when you look at paintings of Moses, you know, those famous paintings (laughs) of Moses, often they'll have him holding the tablets where you can kind of read the (laughs) commandments that are on the tablets, especially if you know a little bit of Hebrew. And yes. frequently, there, go. there we go. We have some tablets if you're watching on YouTube. <laughs> so, um, and frequently that's exactly what they do on those two exactly. com- tablets that yes. he's holding. They yes. break them up. And I, I yes. don't know, I have never looked at like where they actually make the break, but they do do what you're talking about. Yeah. They're, they're usually in Roman numerals, 
Yep. You know, Roman numeral <laughs> one through five and six through ten, which is so anachronistic, right? <laughs> so even even the ones with Hebrew text on the command on the tablets, and this is where like being a being a scholar makes you kind of impossible to please. Um, right. Like even the Hebrew text isn't historically accurate because at this point in history they would have been writing in proto-semitic not in hebrew right, square yeah. script but anyway right um so i, I like to take so these two rocks i just these aren't like legitimate tablets i just picked them up <laughs> at a river when i was camping and i like to bring them to class to use with students um for a couple of reasons if you're if you're watching the video you can see these tablets are about the size of my hand and even at this size, so they're not huge. This is not like the Carlton Heston like version <laughs> where he's got like this massive stone and you're wondering how did he get so ripped that he can carry these down the mountain? <laughs> they're stone. So anyway, the entire the entire uh, 10 words could fit easily on one of these front and back. And the mm -hmm. scriptures are clear that they were written on front and back. If you're if you're gonna have two copies, you and you're writing on front and back. You you don't need you don't need two tablets to get all of the words on here. It's just not that long of a text. It takes mm -hmm. like one page in English. It takes even less you know less space in Hebrew. So um, so yeah, the Roman numerals are misleading. Now since it's front and back, you could still argue there's you know vertical commands on one side and horizontal on the other side. There's just no textual basis for that kind of a division. Uh, so first of all, why duplicate copies? Uh, if Moses came down from the mountain carrying two stone tablets, which he did, then the people seeing him would automatically know, oh, we have just entered into a treaty because every ancient Near Eastern treaty between a greater king and lesser kings uh, or two, two nations would, would come in duplicate form so that each party could take one home and put it in the most holy place of their God's temple. Like that's where you kept treaty tablets. We even have treaty tablets for the vassal, uh, the vassal succession treaty of Esarhaddon, where there's like a, a hole in the base of it so that you could tell that it was displayed like on a stick mm -hmm. so that the mm -hmm. God could conveniently read it. And by the God, I mean like the <laughs> idol of the God who that's in the mm -hmm. most holy place could like have access, visual access to the command because it was the God's responsibility to hold each party accountable for keeping the commands. That's how it okay. worked. So for Moses to come down with two tablets would, would automatically signal to everyone, oh, we've just entered into an international treaty or, or a treaty. And the difference with Israel is that the command, the, the treaty is not between two nations or two kingdoms, but between a deity and a kingdom. So there's only one temple where you can put these things. Uh, it's There's only Yahweh's temple or tabernacle. And so both copies are kept in the most holy place of Israel's tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant. And I think this signals that Yahweh is responsible for holding himself accountable and holding the, the people accountable to mm. obedience to the, the 10 words. In other words, he, there's no one above Yahweh who can guarantee his faithfulness or what watch out to make sure that he keeps up his end of the bargain. Like he is the ultimate authority. And so by, by putting both tablets in the most holy place, it's showing that he, there is no greater authority than him. So, so that's, I think why there's two tablets now back to the tradition of splitting the commands into vertical and horizontal. I do not like this. And the reason I don't is because I don't think it takes seriously what, a treaty, how treaties were understood in ancient times. Um, normally, a treaty between two nations would regulate things that would impact that treaty. So, for example, if nation A and nation B made a, a treaty, like a parity treaty between each other, so they're like on equal footing, they might say, we, we're agreeing to a certain arrangement like... Um, we're providing certain services for each other. We're, we're swearing loyalty to each other. Um, and then the, the treaty would include within it a prohibition of making treaties with any other nation because you, you wouldn't okay. want to like supersede this treaty. Um, so most of the items on these international treaties were, had to do with international relations. The only time it would have to do something with like marriage is is by saying you can't marry the daughter of another king 
because that would be a way of making a, an alliance or a treaty with another nation. So it seems to me that um, we have a difference in Israel in the kinds of commands that are associated with the treaty. They're more moral and interpersonal rather than political and inter- international because this is a different, there's a different scope. Every Israelite is connected to Yahweh um, in co- in covenant. So, for example, the command uh, not to commit adultery is not just a prohibition of adultery because it's morally wrong, but because that marriage is protected under this treaty with Yahweh. If you interfere in that marriage, you're interfering with one of Yahweh's vassals, one of his treaty mm-hmm. partners. And so it's actually an affront to the deity for you to do this. If you murder your fellow Israelite, you are murdering a vassal of Yahweh, which is mm. which then incurs the curses or the wrath of of Yahweh at the great king, who is making sure no one murders. So it's we think of these commands as like moral, and they are moral, but there's this sort of political dimension to them that we often miss. The reason I shouldn't murder my neighbor is because my neighbor is under the protection of Yahweh the great king. And to do so is to violate that treaty. Um, so I think when we divide them into vertical and horizontal, it ignores the fact that everything, uh, the way that I relate to the people around me is a, is a either faithful or unfaithful to what Yahweh has asked me to do. So it's vertical. Like the way I right. treat my neighbor has a vertical dimension to it. And the way I worship Yahweh has a horizontal dimension. Because if I, as a member of the Israelite community, decide, I think today I feel like worshiping Ishtar. She's pretty cool, goddess in Babylon. Um, I, I'm going to worship her and Yahweh. That's actually putting my entire community at risk. So all of my neighbors are now in danger of the wrath of God falling on our community because the consequences for breaking the covenant are not just individual but corporate. We all experience famine or drought or exile. And so it affects every one of my neighbors if I don't keep the first command. So that's why I don't think it's helpful to separate them into vertical and horizontal. In my mind, every command is vertical and every command is horizontal. Mm. Um, Yes, there is a sort of focus. I I mean, you could argue that there's a gradual shift in focus, um, from vertical to horizontal, but I just feel like to divide them uh, ignores that ignores the holistic nature of Israel's law. Um, do you think that the uh, the very first thing that we encounter, I'm the Lord your God who brought out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, just, that fits into your idea of the uh, treaty? Yes. Uh, that the two tablets are two treaties? Yes, yes. It's like the suzerain or the great king announcing his identity and the basis by which he's making this treaty with Israel. Um, and this is typical. There's there's almost right. always a historical prologue at the beginning of a treaty saying, you know, here's, you know, I'm the great king and here's what I have done that merits this kind of loyalty from you. Mm, great. Now, we're going to get into the content of the Ten Commandments now, but we could spend multiple episodes <laughs> on this. So I thought the way we might do it, uh, in the interest of time, is to do this speed round style. I know there are a couple other biblical studies podcasts who like to do their speed round. <laughs> so uh, we're going to do our speed round as but this well. But one's, this one's more biblical, I think. <laughs> right, yes. It's not going to involve any knock-knock jokes or anything like that. You're not going to uh, ask me how to solve a problem like Maria. Okay. Right, good. no, I will not. I will not ask you to sing a song unless you would like to. No, uh, no. So <laughs> here's how we're going to do this. Uh, you mentioned earlier that there are a lot of misunderstandings about these Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And you've thought about these Ten Commandments probably as much as just about anyone else around. So what I thought I'd do is I just read each of the commandments. And I'm going to read them in, in the NRSV. I know there are some debates about translation of some of these issues. And I'm going to use the traditional Protestant order. We've already talked about the issues there. Yeah. Uh, so... <clears throat> I'm going to read them, and then if you could just give us one insight about mm-hmm. each of them, some way that maybe people misinterpret it uh, sure. or something like that, then we'll move on to the next one. So Great. commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Mm. People often assume that this establishes monotheism. There is only one God. 
But if you read it carefully, it seems to presume the existence of other gods and say you're not to worship them. Like you're not to put any other gods before me. In other words, in my holy place in the temple, don't be carting in any other go- idols and, and sticking them there in front of me. Um, I, I don't want that. So it's calling the people to monolatry, the worship of one God in a world where there's polytheism uh, and there's lots of other options that they could try to worship. Okay. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Mm. So the, I think one of the most striking things about this is this is something concrete, like an idol is a statue of a God and and if we carefully read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where God tells the people that, where, where God announces that he's made hum, humans in his image, that is also a concrete statue. Now, it's not exactly the same word. We have Tselem in Genesis, and I think this is Pestle in the, in the 10 words, um, which emphasizes more the making of it rather than the end result. Mm-hmm. But they're both a concrete statue. So God has made humans to be his the representative of his presence on earth, which is why he says, don't make other representations of me. Um, as, as the Bible project puts it in their image of God video, God doesn't want you to make an image because he's already made one and it's you. So, um, one of the things that's striking then is that if we, if we engage in idolatry, if we set up other images of God, we are not only diminishing God, but we're diminishing ourselves because God's appointed us to that role and we give it away to some other entity instead of leaning into the the role that we have of representing him on earth. Great. Okay. Number three, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord, your God. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be really hard for me. (laughs) I've spent 10 years on this command, Uh, but let me try. The, the Hebrew here does not say wrongful use. It says, you shall not bear the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. And I, mm-hmm. I believe that what's happening here is that God is recognizing that at Sinai, he's claimed the people as his own. He's placed his name on them. Like we would put our name on something to say, this is mine. And now he's saying, you carry my name. You bear it among the nations. So live like it. Um, it's, mm. it's a more overarching command. This is not a prohibition of swearing or oath taking or, or uh, any of the other things that are smaller that people try to, try to draw out of this. Like as if we should be afraid to say God's name. We should treat God's name with respect, but this command is much bigger. It's saying all of your life should be a reflection, uh, that you belong to me. Well done. I'm impressed you're able to keep it that brief. Okay. (laughs) Number four, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I think I already, we've already talked about how this is grounded Mm. in the, in their rescue from slavery. And so it's a way of saying you are not slaves. So don't live like you are. And I think in our modern context, like in the past 10 years, there's been a sea change in work patterns because now we can work from home and now we have these little computers we carry on our person all the time by which we can access our email and, and our bosses can, uh, can contact us or we can contact the people who work for us. And so it's even harder than it used to be for us to unplug one day a week and say, I am not a machine. The world will keep mm-hmm. spinning without me working. And so I need to be disciplined to, to take some time off to just enjoy what God's provided. Yeah, it, it requires a measure of trust totally. to be able to do that. Totally. You know? yep. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Yeah, so for this one, I want to just point out something later in the verse that you didn't read. It says, so that you may live long and that it may w- go well with you in the land. Um, and sometimes people read this as if it's a promise that if you honor your parents, you'll live to a ripe old age. And that's not really what's going on here <laughs> because we've all known people who were honoring to their parents who died young and people who were absolute jerks to their parents who lived long. This seems to me to be connected to their tenure in the land. So the idea is if you honor your parents and their faith, and the, you know, if you pass on the covenant from generation to generation, then you all, y'all will get to stay in the land for a long time. And it's when they, 
reject the faith of their forefathers and foremothers that they end up being carted off into exile. They lose the land because they've, they've not kept the 10 words. Mm. Okay. Number six, you shall not murder. Sometimes people view this as a prohibition of killing in general, as if like this is the ground for pacifism, no war, uh, no death penalty, etc. I I think you can make a case for no war or no death penalty from other places, but this is not a great place to do it. This is saying not to take personal vengeance into your own hands when someone wrongs you. Um, we're not supposed to just go out and punish people ourselves, um, like meet out the death penalty individually. We need to put, leave that in the hands of the society and its structure. So in, in this case, um, you know, Israel's judges and co- co- the collective determination of guilt or innocence. Great. Number seven, neither shall you commit adultery. Um, yeah, so... Sometimes people want to make this command about like against all sexual sin of any kind. And it is really pretty specific about not interfering in your neighbor's marriage covenant. Um, And we already kind of touched on that. If we disrupt our neighbor's marriages, it, it unravels the the stability of society. Mm -hmm. Number eight, neither shall you steal. Mm. I think stealing at the core is a failure to be grateful for what God has provided. And so if we, I think the the best antidote to this or prevention of this is for us to cultivate gratitude. Um, taking what someone else's is, is, is always off limits. And so this, this would be a, uh, I think a good place to begin a discussion of the, the, the Bible support for private property, um, Dan Block would call all the 10 commands, all the 10 words, uh, the bill of rights, but he calls it the bill of other people's rights. And so here hmm. we're, we're, we're protecting in, in these commands, we're protecting our neighbor's right to life, marriage, property, reputation. Like we're actually supposed to be all about protecting our neighbor. Great. Uh, and now number nine, neither shall you bear false witness against your neighbor. This one is sometimes taken as a prohibition of lying in general. Um, and that's a, it's its own whole topic. There is lots of lying in the Bible (laughs) that seems to be sanctioned or Mm allowed, at least allowed. Um, I have a friend praised even, even praised. Yeah. There's, there's deception. (laughs) There's deception throughout the David narratives. And, uh, it seems to be in some cases appropriate to deceive. Uh, so again, that's another whole topic. Um, but I would say that this is specifically protecting your neighbor's reputation, um, that that you are supposed to, with your words, uh, tell the truth about others and not in, in an age when they didn't have DNA testing and they didn't have surveillance cameras that they could check. Um, it was, it, you know, it's still important now, but it was really important then that everyone's word about others was true because somebody's life or death could depend on it. And now number 10, neither shall you covet your neighbor's wife, neither shall you desire your neighbor's house or field or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So to me, that's two commands. So do I get double right. the time? Fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the first thing I want to say is that it's very obviously framed to, to men, right? Like, do not covet your neighbor's wife. It doesn't say your neighbor's wife or husband. Like Moses is talking here or God is talking here to Israelite male heads of households and telling them how to restrain their power uh, and protect the rights of their neighbors. So I think, I just think that's interesting. We actually have to do the work of sort of unpacking what would that look like for all of us? Because I think the 10 commandments are for women too, but they're framed for men. So, um, and my neighbor doesn't have an ox or a donkey, uh, but he has a really nice boat and a really nice car. And so we have, we have to do, this is where it's sort of the idea of these commands being universal and timeless, like quickly breaks down um, because my neighbors don't have oxes and donkeys. Um as far as coveting, I find it really interesting that that this command is not something that you could 
legislate? Like, how would you know if I had coveted something? It's something that happens in the heart. So yeah. that tells us this is actually all the Ten Commandments are beyond some beyond a judicial context. There's only one person who can hold me accountable for what's in my heart, and that's the God who sees my heart. And I would argue yeah. that this is this is what gives Jesus the license to talk about the Ten Commandments the way he does in his Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And he seems to be like raising the bar. You know, you, you've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, whoever says to his brother, you fool is in danger of the fires of hell. Like, I think what he's doing is reading all the commands through the lens of this last one. That, oh, interesting. that mm -hmm. it, it, he's not, int he's not introducing a new ethic. He's showing what was always true. That is, it's always been a heart issue. So ev every command is a heart issue. That's, in, that's interesting because in Romans 7, of course, Paul, when he's talking about how sin has enslaved the human being, the commandment he goes to is the 10th commandment. Thou mm. shalt not, but it's abbreviated, thou shalt not desire. Yeah. And yeah. desire is the way by which sin finds its opportunity when the commandment comes mm. to rule over the human. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. an interesting. Uh, yeah. Okay. And now number 11, <laughs> thou shalt, thou shalt read the syllabus. Uh, thoughts on that one? Always a good idea. Always a good idea. <laughs> Uh, Carmen, it's commonly argued that Deuteronomy 12 through 26, or even 6 through 26, follow the outline of the Decalogue in chapter 5. Now, with the commands that follow uh, corresponding to each of the Ten Commandments in order, like, do they correspond to the same commandments in order in these later chapters, or... No, do they depart or what's going on with that? Yeah, this is a really fascinating thing that I hadn't heard of until I got into my dissertation, that some people think that that you can actually see the logic of Deuteronomy, usually 12 through 26, by mapping the Ten Commandments onto them. And so it's like an extrapolation of each command. Um, mm -hmm. So I have a section in my dissertation where I interact with that theory, not because I'm fully persuaded of of it, I I think okay. I I feel like I lean towards it because it it mm. I think it works pretty well. It's just not totally airtight. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah. interestingly, the place where it breaks down the most is with regard to the name command, which is which was my topic for my <laughs> yeah. dissertation. So so what happens is people are like, okay, we got the no other gods and no idols. That's really obviously chapter twelve. Um, but then. But then you get to the name and, and after it works out pretty well, but the name command just doesn't work because there isn't anything about oath taking in chapters 13 or 14. And so what's what's the, the problem with it is that they've already decided that the name command prohibits taking oaths, false oaths, and then they don't find the false oaths and they're like, oh, this doesn't really work. But... If you take my reading of the name command, it works way better. So, um, <laughs> okay. uh, and, and all of them say this: Schultz and Kaufman and Browlick and Otto and Harmon and Walton and Kilcore, like all of them, struggle to match the 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 name command to its respective section. Okay. Um, I shouldn't say Harmon. Harmon takes my view of the name command, so he doesn't struggle, but everybody else does. <laughs> so in chapter, chapter 14 begins by saying, you are the children of Yahweh, your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a people holy to Yahweh, your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, Yahweh has chosen you to be his treasured possession, his segala, his treaty partner. Um, this is, I mean, obviously, if you're thinking this is saying don't say God's name or don't take an oath in his name, then this doesn't work. But if you accept my view that the command is saying you bear my name, so bear it well, then it actually makes a lot of sense to say don't cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. Like don't disfigure your body to show allegiance to someone else living or dead. Because you're set apart to be my people. You're set apart to be holy to mm. me. You need to display even with your bodies that you belong to me. And this phrase there in verse 2, you are a people holy to Yahweh your God, is the same phrase that's on the forehead of the high priest. 
where he has that gold medallion and it says holy belonging to Yahweh. They are a people who are holy belonging to Yahweh. They are a kingdom of priests. So what's true of the priest, that is he bears God's name literally, is also mm. true of them metaphorically. They they figuratively bear God's name. The, the priest is a model of what's true of every Israelite. And so then it makes a lot of sense not to disfigure your body uh, to show allegiance somewhere else because you've been set apart as Yahweh's treaty partner. And then it goes into food laws. And that might seem a little random, but if the, <laughs> if the point of the food laws is to separate between Israel and other nations ethnically, like you, you eat differently than the nations, you're set apart, then it reinforces the idea, you bear my name, so everybody else should be able to look at you and see this distinction. Um, not being able to have table fellowship with other nations actually reinforces that distinction. And that, that distinction lasts until Acts chapter 15, when the, the food laws and circumcision are removed and so that Gentiles can be part of uh, the covenant people. But anyway, to me, this actually works pretty well with the way I read the name command. doesn't work so well with other ways of reading it. Right. Now, uh, in that list of names that you just gave, yeah. there are some who think that it's chapter 13 that correlates with the name command. What yeah. are they seeing there in chapter 13 that might lead to that conclusion? So chapter 13 is, is begins by talking about, um, like, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder and says, hey, let's go follow other gods, don't listen to the words of that prophet. So so what what someone might see there in chapter 13 is the idea of coming to people and saying something in the name of Yahweh, like as Yahweh's spokesperson. Mm. That would mm -hmm. be a way of taking God's name or even bearing God's name in vain. If you are, you know, if you claim to belong to Yahweh, but what you're doing is actually encouraging apostasy. Um, I, I, I'm on the fence. I, I sort of feel like 13 goes better with 12 and would correspond to the first command. Um, but that right. that might be like, so Schultz is one who sees 12 and 13 as corresponding to the name command, but he doesn't assign chapter 14 anywhere to, to anything. John Walton sees the chapter 13 as the one corresponding to the name command, but he doesn't assign chapter 14 to any command because it just doesn't seem to fit. But if you, if you read it my way, then it fits a lot better. So I'm not 100% convinced of the decalogic structure of Deuteronomy, but I do yeah. think it's I mean, kind of fun to think about. Yeah, and one problem you run into quickly is how easy it is to take anything in here and make it fit. Oh, I mean, totally. Specifically, <laughs> totally. these first few commandments that are about, you know, worshiping God, mm -hmm. bearing his name properly and not yep. worshiping other gods. Yep. Well, you know, the way that you treat your neighbor in lots of ways could be yep. a way in which you you worship God rightly and yep. or bear his name properly in the yep. world. So this is where I think any of those kinds of structures, they kind of break down at points. And you also have things like food laws, which, okay, maybe you know, we can see <laughs> yeah, that. Maybe. The, the first couple of verses are better. Are better. The food laws are not yes. as quite as compelling. Right. Um, but then it goes it, into it chapter 15 is about like canceling debts and freeing servants. servants and they're very like Sabbath related. So you, yeah. you yeah. can see why Sabbath would could be the sort of seed of those kinds of laws. So. Now, drawing on the genre that biblical scholars seem to like, which is, you know, the blurb that appears on the back of a book to endorse it, uh, is there something that you've, uh, let's say, come across recently? It could be a book, it could be a TV show, it could be um, a life hack or something you found at the Home Depot, or something <laughs> that you'd like, like to blurb for us or our listeners? Sure. Uh, you know, during the pandemic, we were bored and I was doing a 3000 piece puzzle and somewhere, I think, uh, I think we we're listening to music on YouTube and this song came up by someone I didn't know is Andrew Peterson. And I really don't know where I've been, but Andrew Peterson has mm. some really rich, deep music. And then, then one of the other YouTube videos, he referred to a book he had written and I was like, Ooh, I want to know about this. So we ordered our own copies of uh, his his uh, novels for kids, which are the Wingfeather Saga. And I've decided they're like the best books ever written in, in oh, wow. fiction. Like, I really think these are going to outlast Narnia. 
Uh, so people people describe them as a blend of Lord of the Rings, Narnia and Princess Bride, which gives you a sense of kind of like the slapstick humor. That's part of it. Like it's goofy enough that junior high kids like love them. But my mom, who's turning 70 next month, has read through the whole series twice and just loves them because of how deep they are. Like Andrew Peterson has this amazing ability to like understand the inner workings of the human heart and what what provokes sin Mm. and how shame works and redemption. And it's just like so, so theologically deep, but also just compelling plot. So, yeah, I would I would recommend people check them out. Well, you know, we also interviewed Patrick Schreiner, and he also said the Wing Feather saga. See, well. we're right. So there you go. <laughs> so during Andrew Peterson is going. Yeah. So Andrew Peterson needs to give us some royalties or something like that. During we'll have to contact him about that. Well, Carmen, we are so grateful for your time walking us through the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, Ten Words, whatever we want to call it, uh, <laughs> and thinking uh, in a little more detail about what it means to bear God's name. But for listeners who want to dig much more deeply into that there. I encourage them to check out one of her two books, depending the level that you're aiming for. Uh, And if you want to learn more about the Torah, go to YouTube, or if you're watching us on YouTube now, just click right over to um, Torah Tuesdays with Carmen Imes. Thank you, Carmen. And for those of you uh, who are listening, if you found this helpful, please do uh, give us a rating on Apple iTunes. Uh, That really helps us out in terms of getting the word out about the show. You might as well hear that as though coming from the fire on the mountain. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so. And if you don't right. subscribe, what will happen yeah, to you? Yeah. Well, I will leave that to your imagination. <laughs> Thanks for listening. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelder, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.